Hi, I'm Rob, and this is Dad Sofa, a podcast about the things that connect us. Whether it is a rained-off attempt at a trip to the pub, or string theory, a cycle to Cornwall, or a chat in the sea, we talk about the stuff of life, what makes us curious, the stuff that connects everything, the spaghetti of life. Come and join us. Get comfy. This is Dad Sofa. In the summer of 1882, a team of cricketers from Australia came to the UK and beat England for the first time ever on home soil. The following day, a mock victory was printed in the Sporting Times, a British newspaper at the time, and it stated as follows, an affectionate remembrance of English cricket which died at the Oval on 29th of August 1882, deeply lamented by a circle of sorrowing friends and acquaintances, R.I.P., N.B., the body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. The captain of the English team, Ivo Bly, publicly vowed to regain those ashes, and so the press dubbed the tour back to Australia in December of that year, the quest to regain the ashes. So four months on, and the team were in Australia, and won two of the three tests, as they became called. Ivo was presented a four-inch tall trophy by a group of Melbourne women, one of whom was called Florence Morphy. Now there are a number of different stories, one of which is that the bales for non-cricketers use two small pieces of wood placed on top of the cricket stumps that the bowler has to try and hit and the batsman has to protect. These bales were purportedly burned and placed into the small terracotta perfume jar, which of course became known as an urn. This tiny trophy was presented to Ivo, and within 12 months he was married to Florence Morphy, who some think was the source of the terracotta urn which is now symbolic of the battles that take place every two years between England and Australia. The symbolism of the Ashes Urn being presented to the England captain so that they could be returned to their home in England has of course become a real bugbear between the two countries. The original urn is now in the Lord's Cricket Ground Museum, but a copy is used and presented to the team that wins. I started watching cricket during the 70s when England were on a good run in the Ashes. My parents weren't that interested, but it was playing the game for me at school that made me take note. The first time that I was selected to play for an adult team was when I was about age seven. My father had been drafted in to play for his works department team and one of the players hadn't turned up. The umpire was a stickler for the rules, but the teams were down to the last ball of the match. My dad's team's last player was out and they needed someone to just stand in at the crease for the last ball so that they could win. I could see my dad in deep conversation with the team captain. I was standing at the boundary of the pitch watching them turn and gesticulate towards me. The discussion was heated. Dad was shaking his head and had a quiet word with someone who started jogging over to me. The man simply said, You're going on, lad. I'm not sure I even said anything. I was not much taller than the cricket stumps that I would be supposed to guard, and the cricket pads that were now being put on me should be from the ankles up to the knees. It may have looked slightly amusing, but I was becoming concerned as I looked down and the pads that I was wearing came up to my stomach. As I walked, the top half of the pads pitched forwards at a comic angle and must have made me look like a kind of Heath Robinson or Rube Goldberg contraption. But I was receiving large amounts of applause and may even have managed a wry smile, even though, under it all, I was terrified. As I walked to the centre with the bowler looking at me, I was getting ready to hold bat and face the last ball, a hard sphere that would break bones if pitched up and I couldn't defend. As the crowds dispersed from around the umpire, he was moving his hands from side to side. He didn't seem to have a sense of humour, but my dad's team and supporters still held me aloft, as though they had won the game. A moral victory in humour, if not sport. So having been so close to playing, 
I think that made me want to see the game more. It was more than just a game, but a kind of culture, the fear of standing guard. I remember watching my favourite bowler, Kirtley Ambrose, of the West Indies, thunder in to bowl, wondering what the hell it would be like standing there trying to play in such a dangerous situation. Watching him was a thing of beauty. But now, even listening can be enough for me. There was nothing more wonderful than having the radio on and listening to the crew from Test Match Special, or TMS as it's referred to, whiling away the hours. I'll have the stats on my laptop and do other things while listening to the commentary. The game can sometimes slow up, and so the commentators start to discuss the crowd or read emails that have come in from viewers, or even the taste of the cherry cake kindly sent in by Mrs Muggins from Cricklewood. On one occasion, one of the older commentators clearly hadn't worked out the joke, one which related to toothpaste. There was a toothpaste at the time manufactured by a company called Colgate, and the ads in the 70s often ran with a young lady smiling with white teeth, and a sparkling bright white ring would appear around her neck. She was quite posh, and rather than saying it prevents bad breath, she said, bed breath. The ring of confidence was always associated with clean teeth from then on. The story goes that the letter was brought into the studio, and when read out on air, the commentator said, Ron has written in saying that in his haste to get to bed last night, he mixed up his pile cream with his toothpaste. He has woken up with shrunken gums and a ring of confidence. Then everything went silent in the studio, the occasional stifled snigger, as the commentator's brain caught up with his mouth, and it dawned on him what he had read out. These and other countless other trifles are what makes the magic of listening in to TMS. At the bottom of our road, just half a mile away, is Edgebaston Cricket Ground, so I've been there often. The cricket grounds will often bring beach balls which bounce around in the crowd, and the audience laughs on as one of the cricket officials chases back and forth, trying to capture the ball. When it's eventually caught, the usually rather unfit official takes the ball away to the booze of the crowd for spoiling their fun. Stag parties appear. It may be ten Elvises, or one Darth Vader and nine Stormtroopers. Then there is the seasoned cricket fan who goes to all of the matches. Whether they are seven or seventy, they often wear beige, have a floppy cap, and an earpiece for listening to the radio, and a large cuboid bag over their shoulder containing Marmite sandwiches, crisps, and an apple, along with a few litres of water. They buy the stat sheet so that they can use their biro to keep a ball-by-ball record of each fielder, bowler, and batsman, as well as how the latter was out. The Eric Hollis stand is where most of the rebels go, but even in the members' area there is fun to be had. One year at the Ashes, on a beautiful summer's afternoon, we were sat behind two Aussie lads who had these huge Australian flags, and we thought there may be a problem with viewing the game, but they took real care to only wave them between overs when the bowlers were changing ends. They made comments that all could hear, but were always witty, and we really started to like what they were doing. Then one of them disappeared. While he was gone, the other lad got a large plastic cocktail glass out. It was about 16 inches in diameter, and probably about 20 inches high. He then started draping tea bags over the side of the glass, so that the tags at the end of the bags hung over the outside, to represent the corks famously seen hanging from an Australian hat, designed normally to keep flies away. The other lad appeared with a kettle, and filled the glass, making a large cup of tea, So there they were, in the English sunshine, mocking us with their cocktail glass of tea that looked like a strange mixture of an Australian's hat and a cocktail glass. It's funny that I forget what the score was, but we'll always remember those lads that made for an entertaining afternoon of sport and laughter. I've seen many matches at Edgebaston, but it is where, arguably, the best ever test happened. It was the closest in history. A test normally lasts for five days, with a number of batsmen scoring in the hundreds. So this was close, because the margin at the end was just two runs. 
So it could have gone either way. The first test at Lords had seen England easily swept away by Australia, and so the second test in Birmingham was next. I'm not sure if it was the Lords' result that made me less concerned about missing the match, but it soon became clear that this one was not going to be the same. At one point, Australia needed 104 runs with just two of their 10 wickets remaining. They had only 178 runs, so with 104 to go, it seemed like England were on top and could win for the first time in 19 years. At 220 runs, still with 62 to go, another wicket went, and it seemed like it was just a matter of time. But the Australians fought back and got to just four runs from victory, needing one boundary to win. Michael Kasprovich hit the ball towards the boundary and thought he'd done it, but only one run was scored as the ball was quickly fielded and sent back to the wicketkeeper. Just two runs off levelling, Steve Harmison, the English bowler, bowled with the crowd in silence, the crowd's eyes raised skywards as Kasprovich hit the ball up high into the air and the wicketkeeper scrambled about 12 feet to his left and dived, catching the ball with outstretched arms. Kasprovich was out, giving victory to England. I had tickets for this match, but had decided to go on a two-centre holiday in Wales with the family, which, incidentally, I discussed in episode 83. I gave the tickets to my father-in-law, who of course was grateful, and couldn't hide his smirks when we met after the holiday, and I explained how, as well as regretting not going, we spent most of the holiday in the car, listening to the cricket on the radio, but the reception was so dreadful that we all ended up with headaches, listening to the commentary through constant background noise, whistling and fuzzing, and breaking up of the digital audio. England went on to win the Ashes that year, and it was that match that was pivotal in England's success. I go past the ground almost daily, and rarely am I not reminded of that particular summer's day. 